Uh, you know, as you guys might know, Living Way is actually a church that's been around a long time, planted in 1981. I've been going since 98. And <clears throat> we've had all kinds of eras of different ministries. And I was thinking this week about a particular era of men's ministries where they got together and they built spud guns. Uh, we still have them. They're in the shed. I saw them there the other day. And uh, so we're, I'm ready to defend our land if it came to it. Um, <laughs> People will be coming and they'll hear me rattling a can of spray, hairspray, whispering, don't tread on me as I load it with a potato. Um, But they built these potato cannons to shoot into that big field right in front of our church. And so they got all the guys together and they're just blasting these potatoes into this field. And we've had this long-standing policy with our men's ministry, still true today, if you didn't know this. There is not an age limit on men's ministries. Uh, If you have a a son, you want to bring him along, we just ask that they come with someone that plays that mentoring role for them. And so this was an open event for everybody. And so a seventh grader came along and he said, hey, he said to one of the the elders, and we'll we'll leave him unnamed. We'll we'll give him a false name. Let's pretend we once had an elder in our church named Tom Doobie. And he goes... Let's say this kid goes to Tom Doobie and he says, I'm going to go into the field. I want you to shoot the potato at me and I'm going to catch it. And Tom was like, you're not my son. Go for it. And, and, was, and was going to have him go into the field to shoot a potato at him. And finally, someone intervened and was like, you can't shoot a potato cannon at a seventh grader. And it stopped it. And the seventh grader was disappointed. Um, and I realized in that moment, sometimes being told no is the greatest thing that will ever happen to you. Sometimes it'll save your life. It'll save your sternum from getting hit with a potato at alarmingly fast speeds. When these things go off, they do sound like a cannon. That's why you call it a potato cannon. I mean, it sounds like you're shooting a gun. And they were going to shoot it right at his tiny little chest. (laughs) Sometimes being told no is the best thing that could ever happen to you. I truly think that we really don't know what it is that we really need. This is one of the things that defines this human condition of struggle is that we have a hard time understanding what we really want and we grab something else. This is actually the the triggering point of all addiction is that we want something, we have a need, but uh, instead of identifying, maybe we don't want to admit or it's hard to identify what it is, what the real need is we grab something nearby that's very distracting it's strong and it's, it's flavor to our spirit, our soul, our body, whatever it is. And we throw it into the void uh, with this hope that it'll distract for a moment. People eat when they're not hungry uh, for actual sustenance for their body, but they eat because they're hungry for harmony in their own lives. People spend hours scrolling on their phones when their real need is to be heard in their actual relationships and experience emotional intimacy. Some people look at pornography when they really need to do is come to terms with the simple reality that they don't feel like they're big enough to handle the pressures in their own lives. So we find these ways to distract ourselves. We have an actual need, but we can't connect what it really is. We can't identify it, and we don't know how to meet it. And this weakness, it makes us very bad at identifying and asking for what we need. Say perhaps we feel like what we need is a potato fight at our chest at 60 pounds per square inch, uh, but that's not what we need. We need something else. We need to be told no from time to time. Maybe we want a relationship. We want a job. We want to have a particular appearance, and God will say no. Peter found something in his life. We've been on a series talking about Peter, 
and we've been working through his life, this apostle who has so much text written about him. He is the most uh, documented of, of the apostles. We know so much about him from when he was a young man to an old man. We know who he was, the letters he wrote. And as we follow his progression, we realize that he is this completely unpolished, ultra-realistic version of, what it, of, of all Christians that follow Christ. It starts out messy. Maybe you even follow for the wrong reasons, but God has a way of changing you and morphing you along. And what Peter found is that he was told no as to what he wanted. And then what he found is that when God says no to something in our lives that's negative, it's usually to make room for something that's far more positive, something we really need. I want you to think of this right now. I want you to think, and you don't have to share. We won't share anybody's names. But just quietly unto yourself, your most toxic person you ever had a crush on. Ever. Like, think about who it was. You might have dated them. It, it, you, there were, but there was a time in your life you really, really wanted that person. You wanted to be with that person. And aren't you glad that you didn't get what you wanted? Uh, we all have, you know, people that we liked, people that we were with, whatever it was. We really wanted that person. We wanted to be with that person. But that was pulled out of our life. And at the time, it might have been painful. It might have been disappointing. But think of what filled in that space. Maybe it was uh, changes within yourself. It could have been who you met afterward. But the fact is that we have a hard time knowing what it is that we really want. God doesn't just leave a spot open. He leaves it open for something better. So what did Peter want? What was his grand disappointment? He wanted the kingdom without a cross. He had a hard time dealing with this idea of a Messiah that was, that was and I mean, his defense was uh, really turned on its head from what all Jews had expected at the time. They thought the Messiah would come and be this grand military liberating leader in the same way Moses led them out of Egypt. He would lead them to take dominion of the land, to defeat Rome, and to bring peace and harmony on earth. And it was very hard for him to accept that Jesus said he would suffer and be killed. It was very hard for him to accept when he saw it happening. It was very hard for him to accept that when the guards came to take him, that he was supposed to let Jesus be taken. He struggled with these things of what he wanted. He wanted the triumphant Messiah who would reign in Peter's own lifetime. He wanted someone that would deliver from Rome, but what he got was a Messiah who suffered, died, defeated, was uh, raised to life again, and was victorious over sin and death. Not liberated from Rome or just some small empire, but liberated from the real source of human tyranny, sin and death. I would say that isn't a downgrade, but an upgrade. Yes, Peter didn't get to see King Jesus reign over this world in his lifetime. That is the thing that even we are still waiting to see that happen. But he was told no, and he was given something so superior. And I think that's the, the root of what he can dispense later in his life, the way Peter can help us come to terms with and, and to be able to grip with the thing that kicks against spiritual blessing. Why is there such a strong voice in us that if we ask for something carnal and God gives us something spiritual, we pretend like it's a consolation prize? Like if we pray, God, help me with my finances, do something, send miracle money, help me win the lottery. But instead he combs out the hard places in us that really poorly manage our budget. He gives us gratitude for the simple things we have and we feel like this was a consolation prize. I really asked for something else, but he came and he gave me something kind of sort of a little bit like it. And that is really fleshly thinking. In the end, the greatest things in our lives cost very few dollars. They really do. A person who's dying on their deathbed, they, they have fonder memories of the more impoverished life they had in their youth than, they, than the wealthier one they had later. 
the times that they were with their kids, and people remember so fondly the busted old station wagon taking the kids and all the fights that happened in the car, all the things that you can discount in life, the things that are always the most important, tend to be uh, cheap to free. What good is money if it doesn't bring contentment? What good is a relationship if it doesn't bring harmony? We can only become better at knowing uh, what we really need as we spend time with Christ. And we find that we are so much more spiritually motivated than we realize. That we're starving for something spiritually. And because we're not awakened to our spirit yet, because we haven't spent enough time with the Lord, we tend to want to satisfy it carnally. That, that we really want is harmony. We want peace. We want, we want some tranquility. We want blessed assurance. And everything in our modern culture says that is money. That is what you need. You need financial peace and belonging. That's what will bring you uh, the blessing you're looking for. But there is something so much more. And I think for Peter in his life, since giving up the Messiah that wouldn't suffer the kingdom without the cross, the triumphant life that he thought he would have when he began to follow Jesus, I think empowers everything he wrote, everything he did, and it empowers his first miracle he does after Pentecost. So yes, we're back on track now. I know I did this to you last week. We did Pentecost. I said, we're going back. We're back on track. The whole vision was we'd move progressively through Peter's life. So now Pentecost has happened. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. The church has begun. And this humble fisherman who has his accent made fun of gives a sermon that is so powerful, launches something that is incredible, the united kingdom of God under Christ. And now life continues on. And what does that look like? I want to read uh, the first story of uh, uh, first, our first story back into the life of Peter after that. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 3. We're going to be starting in verse 1. It says, One day Peter and John were going to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those who were going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Uh, Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. There's a literary device that's being employed here of monotony. It begins with monotony. At the time of prayer, they prayed. At the time of begging, he begged. And then something really unexpected happens. The monotony is interrupted because these disciples, they're awakened to the moment. I'll tell you, busyness and familiarity, they are the enemies of what God does in the moment. As we start to say, I know this, I'm going to run the script, I know exactly what to expect of my afternoon, I know exactly what to expect of my grocery shopping trip. The moment that monotony comes in, that I'm doing things, that the time you do them and everything's going on is normal, it can break things up. Because God wanted to do something that day, and what's interesting is everybody was going there uh, allegedly to think about God, to speak with him. It was the time of prayer. And yet everybody walks past this man. A prayerful life can open us up if we're praying those right kinds of prayers. Everybody was going to pray, but two of them were going, listening to what God was doing in the moment. Because prayer, it can become dead repetition. It can become at the time of prayer, I pray. We must never forget that it is incredibly, profoundly supernatural that in that moment we're speaking to the creator of the universe, that we are speaking with God, listening to God Almighty. 
the reality, uh, a reality these disciples were more awakened to. They, they understood this idea of how profound prayer is because they just spent three years walking with the Son of God. There's this awakened sense of what is happening within them as the Spirit is on them, as the Lord is with them. I think what we could take from this is pray like you know God, like God knows you, like God is living and active and right there in that moment. I think we should begin our prayers focusing on the moment. I think that's one of the things Christ wanted us to take from the prayer he taught us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It begins with focusing on what God is in this moment. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven to the future. Give us today this daily bread back to the present and the moment that as we pray for things in the future, we keep anchoring ourselves back to what God is doing right now because sometimes God wants to interrupt. God wants to do something different. God wants to say, it might be the time to pray. It might be the time to beg, but I'm going to do something different right now. And we are awakened to that when we realize God lives so much in this moment right now. In this moment with you, in, a, I think, a, a very comfortable pew. I sat in those when we got, first got here, and those are nice. For, for the fact that they would totally not work for us, we would go to pews, but, but you, know, you can enjoy them for a little bit. But in that pew right now, there is a spirit of God that's with you, something he's doing right now on this Sunday morning. There's an awakeness to that that happens as we walk with the Lord and we live with the Holy Spirit. And the miracle begins in such a beautiful way. It begins with extending human dignity. It says, Peter looked right at him, which is, an, which is a unique note to take because it means something. People have always been the same. They did the same thing then that we do now, that when we pass the destitute homeless beggar, most people feel comfortable not looking right at them, not making eye contact, not, not having an interaction. They looked right at him. It's an interesting thing because I think we can feel overwhelmed when we're with homeless people. I know I do. It's like you're driving by, uh, it would be like if you were rowing by the Titanic as it was sinking and you had a boat with not one seat to spare and you have no idea what to do for those people. It can sometimes feel that way. You go by someone who's, who's tanked their life to such a degree that, that friends and family aren't around them. Maybe their friends and family were destructive from the beginning, they're alone, and you feel totally overwhelmed. And we live in a region where the homeless population has gone up so much over the last few years. It's gone up even over this last year. And it can be an intimidating problem. What can I do? And I think when we're around them, we often think, what can I do? What should I do? And what can anybody do? We'll read in a moment the famous line to this story is, silver and gold have I not, but what I have I give to you. I think that that is, a, that is something to really lock down and remember. It's such a memorable line from the story, and I think it would inform us as to how to care for people whose troubles are vastly too intimidating. That what I have, I give to you. That we shouldn't interact with homeless people like it's our job uh, to save them, and if we don't do that, we fail. That we're supposed to walk away from that corner having fixed every problem in a decades-long broken life. If you, that, as if you would do nothing uh, for them unless you were to buy them food, lodging, everything, every single time. I think we give what we, what we have. And maybe we don't have silver and gold. Maybe we don't have that in the moment. But what we have, we give to them. It doesn't mean you're always going to heal like Peter, but sometimes it's also very healing to do what Peter did first and to look right at them and extend some human dignity. To give, them that, to give them that recognition, that sense of belonging as to who they are. We have to remember that no matter how marred and how damaged the human image is, 
their humanity, they are still beings that were created in the image of a divine God. And even if it's marred, even if it's hurt, even if it's wounded and hidden, it's still there. That there's a little bit of our Father in heaven in every single person we come across. And I think it can be deeply healing to begin at least with step one, to look them right in the eye and to extend human dignity to someone in that moment. And this is the Christian way. We give what we have. We can give kindness. We can give mercy and recognition to all. And to those that God prompts you to do more, be obedient and do more. But among all of them, we'd have a simple mantra that we will always make eye contact. We will always give them dignity and honor because this is the way Christ was with us when our image in us was so lost. When you didn't look like the Father in heaven, when you didn't look like Jesus, when you weren't conformed to that, he still gave us his time, so let's copy everything he does. I have a strong suspicion that if we copy Jesus in our whole lives, we will live very successful lives. But the story continues. Then Peter said in the famous line, silver and gold uh, I do not have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them, jumping uh, into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising, they recognized him as the man who used to sit begging at the, at the gate, uh, excuse me, at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. It's interesting, this man is asking for money. In fact, when he looks at them and expects to get something from him, the something he was expecting was mammon, it was money, it was resources. But God had another thing to give to him through Peter. And Peter, I think, in, the, in this moment where he partners with the Lord, we can hear a bit of the Father's heart to the no's that we get in life of, no, I'm not going to give that to you. But what I'm going to give you is something different. It's good. I'm going to give you what you really need. In this story, it is short. The connection between getting what he didn't ask for and rejoicing in it happens immediately in the text. I find in life that it's not so short. That sometimes we ask for one thing, we're told no, we're given what we really need, and it can take years and decades to, be, to realize what that was. It can happen very briefly, it can happen quickly, but oftentimes when we're given the thing we didn't ask for, it takes a little longer than this. When God heals the deeper thing, when he goes deeper, sometimes it takes a while for it to become fully healed, fully whole, for us to realize what it was really worth. Just remember this. Christ said, God, your Father in heaven would never give you a snake if you ask for a fish. He would never give you a stone if you ask for bread. But sometimes he won't give you bread and he won't give you a fish. He'll give you something greater. And in the moment, some people go, this isn't greater. I said I wanted money, not gratitude. I said I wanted to be in a relationship with that person, not learn a hard life lesson for not being with them. And yet we find the things that God gives are so much more nourishing because we struggle from the common human problem. We don't know what we need. We have no idea. If we knew what we need, there would, addiction wouldn't even be a concept we could comprehend because people who are really broken and want to be made whole wouldn't look for it in substance. They wouldn't look for it in things that are going to hurt them. We just do not know, but we know the one who does know. Now, there's a detail here that's very, very well meant to be looked into, exegeted, and understood. And it's this term that's used over and over again, the gate called beautiful. Why is it called that? And what is the history of that gate? 
There's many gates to the temple, the ones that the priests would go through or the inner courts, they were laden with gold. And they were, they were extremely expensive to do that with. And so there was an outer court gate. The one that went to the outer one wasn't considered as nice. So they laden it with bronze. And the thing about bronze is that it oxidizes and turns green. I would put before you the Statue of Liberty used to not be that color. So to keep it from turning green, they had to, come, they had to polish it constantly. And it was always someone's duty to go out there and polish this gate so that it wouldn't turn, uh, oxidize and turn green. And what they found is that bronze has such a richer color than gold. You see it from a distance. It would reflect light differently. And um, in the end, it was the gate that everyone said was the most beautiful one. Despite the fact the other ones were supposedly nicer, they're laden with gold, this is the one that people remembered. And it was not the priest that named it that, but the people that testified that's simply the most beautiful thing we've ever seen. In the same way that when this man is healed and he's leaping into the courts, people have to admit that's the most beautiful thing that could have happened to him. The story of the gates is very much like the miracle. Silver and gold, it had not, but what it had was something more beautiful. That there's, there's a poetic meaning to being healed at this gate and at this place. That so many times we're certain gold is worth more than bronze. It has to be. But there's just certain things in our life that when it's said and done, everybody everywhere would say that is the most beautiful thing. And in your life, there are things that you have and you think that they're a headache and you think that they're difficult. You don't know why God won't change it out, why he keeps having you sit with it. But at the end of your life, it very well may be the thing you say, that was the most beautiful. I am grateful for that. The people are in amazement these carnal people, that this is astounding, this is something amazing, greater than, much greater for him to receive that than gold. It's the way that we realize God's work when it's done. That at the time it may seem small, it may seem little, but Peter connects with this because at one point he gave up the idea of being a general in a grand empire for being an apostle that would one day have his hand stretched out in front of him, led to somewhere he didn't want to go and be killed, as Jesus said what happened to him. But in the end, to Peter, that was the thing that was called beautiful. It's true, Peter's execution isn't in the Bible. Church history writes it very, very concisely. It's, it's the same everywhere. It's a very strong witness as to what happened to him, that he was crucified in Rome. Uh, Paul was beheaded. He was a Roman citizen. You couldn't crucify a Roman citizen. Peter was not. He was a Jew. He was brought into Rome, and he was crucified. And it says that when he was crucified, that he demanded to be crucified upside down. He did not want to have the appearance of Christ. He felt he, was, he still wasn't worthy of it. And it's said that his last words that they could hear him say is he walked up to what is now St. Peter's Basilica. They built it right on top of the site that said that he was killed at. They said that the last thing they heard him say is, um, he said to the cross, I've longed to embrace you. The fact is that there's so many things in our lives we call hardships, we call impossible. We say, God, where are you in this? Why do you leave me with this difficult thing? And it's because we just don't understand that sometimes bronze is more beautiful than gold. And sometimes the things that we felt like were consolation prizes turned out to be the greatest thing. And it's simply because as humans, we don't know what we need and God does. And Peter learned at one time in his life when he was younger to trust God that if God says no, it's because he's replacing it with a greater thing. And this, I think that there is a deep harmony we read in Peter's epistles in particular. And we'll get into those next week. First and second, Peter have this, 
When you read it, you get a picture of a man who's just come to peace with who he is, and he wants you to do the same. He wants you to have peace in your church. He wants you to have peace in your family. He wants you to have peace with the local government. He wants you to be at harmony and know that the Lord's covered all matters. And that kind of harmony comes from we can accept both yes and no from Jesus, both as good news. Because we're the fools that want to be shot in the chest with a potato cannon. And sometimes Jesus says no. A no from God is sometimes opening to the most beautiful things in life. So don't be so certain what you think an answered prayer looks like. What an answered prayer to your situation would look like and say, God's done nothing in this. He's forsaken me. Spend enough time with Jesus that like Peter, you would realize how far more spiritual your desires and dreams really are, how much we seek out a carnal world to fulfill them, and that the greatest blessings in life are the blessings that go with us into eternity. I want to pray for us. I have a couple things in particular I'm going to be praying for us for. I want to pray for people in here who are struggling with the bitterness over unanswered prayers. I want to pray for those who have given up hope that God is going to move in the area that we've asked him to move in so many times. Lord, I pray for those in here right now who struggle with, 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 with resentment growing up inside of them and the shame that comes within all of us when we begin to realize that we're resenting God. And we, we grow frustrated and we wonder, why is my prayer not answered? Why is nothing happening? Lord, I pray that we would remember that you will never give a scorpion for a fish or a stone for a bread. It doesn't mean you always give us what we ask for, but it means that you never downgrade it. That sometimes you give us something and we say it seems empty or it's not here yet or I'm not ready for it yet. And it becomes the most beautiful thing. Lord, I pray that we could have confidence that just because you haven't answered the prayer the way that we wanted, it doesn't mean you're not answering that prayer. That sometimes you don't answer the prayers the way we wanted because you answered them the way that we need. Lord, I pray that we could trust you as the good Lord, that over all things in both yes and no, you're always on our side, always advocating for us. And God, I pray that the root of bitterness that drives a wedge between us and our Savior would begin to be pulled up. And that we could find ourselves enjoying your presence, enjoying who you are, enjoying prayer again, enjoying prayer journaling again. Thank you, Lord, that you are too good sometimes to give us everything that we ask for. But you know what the real desire is of the heart, which is why the word says that the Lord satisfies the desires of the heart, even when we misidentify them. Lord, I pray for those who have who've just given up hope. They give up hope and they wonder if you'll ever do anything because they wait so long. Lord, I pray that we could have faith that even in this waiting time, if we haven't seen it, if we haven't understood it, that you have put things in our life that we will one day call beautiful, that you've never been idle in your development of us. You've never been idle in bringing us to the next phase, to the next stage, and to the next place of healing. So Lord, I pray that we could be encouraged that even in waiting, you do great things. That in you, all your promises are yes and amen. And that deep inside of us is a desire to be fulfilled spiritually. So Lord, I pray that we would realize that even now in what feels like a dry season, as long as your spirit can dwell close with ours, we can be made fully alive in you. 
We give you this time ahead of us. We pray that you would be with us. Lord, I pray for a sense of your presence to be with us in this moment, that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is with us in this church, in this building, sitting before us, going before us, in us now. We thank you, Lord, that in that place, no change is impossible. In your name we pray, amen.